Want to learn how to leverage your marketing to get clients on repeat? Charge a fee that leaves you with money in your pocket even after you've finished paying your bills? And finally, stop working with the clients that you've long outgrown? Liberated Business is a transformational program that combines group and one-on-one work so you get the best results possible. This differs from every other program out there because it helps you make money while supporting your joy and liberation throughout your entrepreneurial journey. Liberated Business starts this June and runs through November, and enrollment is open now. Visit thebadtherapist.coach liberatedbusiness to get all of the details and sign up. DM me on Instagram at thebadtherapist with any questions or to learn more. I cannot wait to get started with you. The most powerful thing for my practice is not trying to be a version of a therapist that is somebody else that I see, because there are so many therapists that I admire and I look at them and I'm like, I want to be able to do that. And then really coming back to, but I'm me, I'm not them. And if I try to be them, I'm going to have a lack of confidence because I'm going to be contorting myself into a shape that I'm not. And so how do I really honor my story, my history, all the building blocks of my life that have brought me here. And there was something that shifted in me where it became easier to present myself as a therapist when I just kind of really let myself be like, well, what do I, what can I not shut up about? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do that. Hey there, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show, the podcast for current and aspiring private practice therapists who want to earn more money, work less, and have a way bigger impact. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist, former goody-goody therapist turned six-figure private practice owner and therapist business coach. I'm here to help you learn everything you need to know about private practice and expanding beyond the one-to-one model so you can earn more money and increase your impact as a therapist without burning out or hustling. Using my proven liberated business method, therapists at all stages of business have been able to grow their income while becoming even better therapists. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. It's time for you to get your time back and enjoy being a therapist again. You ready? Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist. Today, I'm joined by Emily Adams, private practice therapist in the California Bay Area. Emily and I met post-grad school when we were doing our training together at the Center for Mindful Psychotherapy, and we thought it would be fun to catch up together. Emily was extremely generous in sharing her story with us today from what made her decide to become a therapist, her biggest challenge in the first year of building her practice, how she finally started being herself in her marketing, and the one promise she makes to all of her therapy clients. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. Seriously, there are literally dozens of pure gold moments, and you're going to relate so much to Emily's story. I hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed having the conversation. Emily, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to be having this conversation with you about your journey of being a therapist, how you got started, where you're at right now. And I would love for you to just introduce yourself a little bit, and then we'll dive into some questions. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here talking with you. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. My name is Emily Adams. I'm a somatic psychotherapist based in the Bay Area. I offer 
teletherapy for clients all around California and have worked at a couple of different counseling centers and agencies, but now run my private practice under the name Emily Adams Therapy. Nice. And as most therapists, like that was a long journey. So I thought it'd be great for us to just start at the beginning. You know, we all become therapists for different reasons. I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about your story, what inspired you to get into this field. We'd love to hear about that. Sure. Yeah. So I think my origin story starts pretty young. Um, I came into this world and was introduced to the concept of death pretty early. So I think as a kid, I grew up with this early sense of like, life's not always happy. Life's not always easy. Scary things can happen. I think that came online at an age that was a little early developmentally for me. So there was a little bit of a jarring, rocky start. And in some ways that created, you know, me being called an old soul as a kid. And I think a lot of people that are called old souls know that it's usually because you've experienced something that's beyond your age. And so I think I had a connection with feeling different from a pretty young age. And that connected me with having a tender spot for other people that felt different or felt wounded or felt like they had experienced something that maybe other people hadn't experienced. And similar to probably a lot of therapists, I got identified by people in my life from a young age as a good listener, as a resource, as someone who's grounded or makes people feel comfortable. So I got a lot of that conditioning and was really praised for how my presence made other people feel. So that was some of the early, you know, when we're just trying to figure out what am I good at? Who am I? Who am I not? What am I not good at? Um, I think by the time I was in high school, I was pretty certain that I wanted to study psychology in college. And through, you know, I think similar to your story, you know, I picked psychology and everyone says, oh, you're going to change your major a lot. And I was just like streamlined, you know, I'm on this train, we're going. We're like, have you not heard? I'm an old soul. This is what we do. We become therapists. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I think the one thing I was maybe doing differently in college was I was getting really curious about the body and psychology at the same time. And that was a little taboo. I started picking up on the sense that maybe that wasn't um, normal in the field. I think this is when somatics was like just starting to come on line for people. And so some of my professors even were like, Ooh, (laughs) I don't, I don't know about that. They were Um, skeptical. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I was interested in body work. I was managing some of my own chronic pain And I had this knowing of like, I want to do body work and I want to do psychotherapy and I don't know how they're going to fit together. And I don't know if they're going to fit together. And after college, in between college and grad school, I did a massage program and was just sort of like, I'm going to do it. I don't know why this has to happen in this order, but it feels like it does. And that ended up being really helpful because it gave me that kind of foundation of understanding the body and the anatomy 
And it also gave me something to earn money through grad school. So that was um, important in that sense of starting to learn some of those business skills, starting to run my own practice. I mean, I was practicing under someone or someone who had a a pretty developed caseload in bodywork and I wasn't, you know, doing all of the marketing or all of the um running on the business side, but I learned a lot from her. And I think that was really helpful in a way that I didn't even recognize in the moment. And it really continued to sort of foster my love for that intersection in the Venn diagram of like where the mind and the body meet. Um, and I just really loved watching the ways that my massage clients would experience their emotions differently or their lives would start shifting as they were really committed to their body work. And that started really turning on some light bulbs for me around my psychotherapy practice. And I didn't choose the somatics program, but ended up feeling by the end of all my training and after getting licensed that like, I, it took me a while to really claim that title of like, yeah, no, I am a somatic therapist because I have the training. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, I would say like, you are such a somatic therapist, you know, I think that's in general, we therapists can have a hard time giving ourselves credit, I think. So I'm not totally surprised to hear that you would have this whole um, experience as a body worker and still hesitate to call yourself a somatic therapist because you're like, well, I didn't go to that program. So I guess I can't call myself that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's like, of course you were, of course you were basically the whole time because Mm -hmm. you had such a strong relationship with your own body, knowing how to work with other people's bodies. It's just kind of like this extra sense that I think we have when we're somatics practitioners that that's, there's just this other thing that we're always paying attention to in the room beyond the kind of traditional psychotherapy things. Um, I just want to say thanks so much for sharing your story of how you came to be in this field, including the really personal bits. I think so many people listening can really relate to that, being that old soul, being the person who really early on gets clocked as the one who's a good listener, who knows how to, I don't know if this is your experience, but I certainly had an easier time talking to adults than I had talking to people my own age. <laughs> like I found children, happy children, very intimidating and strange. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to sit in a corner and read, you know, and also your, your point around somatics kind of like being a burgeoning field when you were getting into it. Unlike you, I didn't get into somatics until after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And I started doing Qigong. I was like doing a Qigong practice. And I remember just being like, whoa, this is so different. I am connecting with my body in a way that feels, it's just busting the doors wide open. And then I started incorporating somatics work into the work I was doing at the methadone clinic. But at the time, I didn't have the language for what I was doing. It was just very like intuitive and natural. And then and then I discovered there was this whole field. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing you can get a master's degree in this stuff. So yeah, I'm just noticing the ways like there's some some similarities, like both kind of discovering somatics. I love that you also were being a bit of a rebel in that time where you were getting this feedback from professors that maybe this wasn't like that normal of a thing to be interested in, but you really trusted yourself and the kind of wisdom that you had to go pursue becoming a body worker and then come back 
So yeah, it sounds like it took you a minute to come around to claiming that somatics practitioner label as well. And I think that's also just like a good segue into how you got started in your practice. So you went to CIS, you were in the ICP program, is that correct? I was. Okay. And for those who aren't (laughs) CIISers, could you tell folks like what that means, what that program was? Yes, it's the Integral Counseling Psychology Program. a lot of people are familiar with ICP as um, Insane Clown Posse, and it's not that. Not the um, same thing. Yes. And so the way that I came to understand that was it was it had a little bit of mind, it had a little bit of body, and it also had the spirit. Um, and that was really attractive to me for including all three of those levels and something that I was really drawn to in the program. And the way that I knew that was the best fit for me was actually a somatic experience for me was I went to the information session and I was sitting there and I just had these overwhelming body sensations. Like I wanted to cry. I felt this deep sense of like, whoa, like these people are talking about things that I feel like I wasn't allowed to talk about. Like I had this real pull of like, I could be welcomed into this space. Um, so I think that can be something important for people to pay attention to as they're finding their own path, because there are so many paths to becoming a therapist and it's so hard to pick which one's going to make the most sense for you, especially if you're asking other people and really paying attention to like, what is my body reacting to was like a big part of that journey for me. I do think that is really important just because there's a lot of noise and I think it's such a big decision. It's a huge decision financially. Sometimes we're considering a move. And so I think sometimes we'll look to other people to be like, what is the right answer? Because we don't want to get it wrong. We want to make sure we choose the right thing. But the reality is that it is ultimately our decisions. It's your decision where you go to grad school and you are going to be the best person to know when that's right or not. And the other thing is that every grad program is definitely going to have its ups and downs. I know I had a lot of qualms with my grad program. I think probably, I'm sure you did too. I think that's just very normal. And I still walked away feeling at the end of the day, like I got a great education. I kind of liken it to like Hogwarts a lot. I described CIS as Hogwarts and I feel like our professors were kind of like these wacky magicians and wizards and witches who were like teaching me things. But most of the time I didn't even realize what I was learning, which could sound like a pretty like bad critique. Like I could imagine people hearing this and being like, oh no, that sounds actually bad. But what I'm constantly impressed with is just like the caliber of therapists that come out of these programs at CIAS is like astounding. I think compared to so many other people in the field, I think we tend to stay in it longer. We also have a much higher passage rate on the exam, which I think is hilarious because our educations are not traditional at all. Therefore, we know we have to study for the exam. That's why we pass. (laughs) So I'm ultimately really happy with the decision to go there. Although at the time I was like very frustrated a lot of the time. I'm curious what your experience was once you were in the program. It sounds like you had this very clear yes in the information session. Like I belong in ICP. What were the things that you loved about your experience of being in grad school? What were the things that were hard? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question because it did shift and ebb and flow and 
you made a, a really important point there that I feel like I can connect to with my education, but also my own therapy growing up, which is in the moment, it can feel so mysterious. Like, what are these people teaching me? We're kind of talking in the hypothetical. I'm not seeing clients yet. So I don't really know what you mean when you're trying to teach me how to do therapy. And what I notice is that it's almost like a rock dropped in the middle of a pond and the the wave, the ripple takes sometimes years to reach the edge. And I, I notice that I'll get these little pings or waves of remembering something that a teacher said or remembering something that my therapist in high school said that at the time felt like bullshit or felt like I don't even get this. And then it'll kind of hit the shore way later on. Um, And so I think that was something that was both frustrating for me in school because a lot of our professors were practicing psychotherapists in private practice alongside teaching. And it felt so mysterious to me. It felt like, just let me in the room, let me see what you're actually doing. And it has taken years of my own practice to really have some of those messages like click and make sense. Um, So in the moment, the frustration, I think was fine and was okay. And it just takes a while to integrate, you know, it, it takes a while to digest the information for it and for it to make sense in practice. Yeah, I agree so much with that. One of the things that's coming to mind right now is I remember in grad school getting the message that therapy is more of an art than a science. Mm -hmm. And this just makes me think about art. It's like, yes, if this were simply a science, it would be very exact and very clear and you would get the rules and the strategies and then you do it and you get the correct outcome, right? But this is actually more of an art. There's interpretation. There's what someone creates is not the same as how someone else views it and what they get from it. And there is a sense of like play and creativity and experimentation that is so much about therapy. And I think CIS especially has that kind of a training. I think when you go to more traditional programs um, that are going to be teaching more like evidence-based or like, you know, just I remember just like CBT felt like a four-letter word at CIS. Like everyone was automatically like, CBT, we hate it. I mean, I'm actually quite a fan. I think it's very effective. But it was like, we were into like using touch and psychedelics and spirituality and all these things that were just like so expansive and so non, in some ways, it's kind of funny because I would say non-traditional, but actually these are like very, very traditional These are the healing, deeply traditional. These are the healing modalities that actually existed before the field of psychotherapy did. And it seems like a real homecoming that psychotherapy is actually beginning to like reintegrate all of these different traditional healing modalities that I think CIS really focuses on in a way that most other, you know, trainings just don't. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think that clients are starting to catch on to that too, because CBT is one of the better marketed and more widely studied interventions. And so I 
I found that, you know, in when I was first starting to see clients, that was the thing a lot of clients were familiar with. They had heard of CBT. And so it's totally, they would ask about, do you do CBT? And you're like, no, (laughs) I could, but we could do something that's better. Exactly. And so I, I do love that there is more research coming out about um, some of the, they're not even newer modalities, but the the newer accepted modalities, the, you know, the, the modalities that we're returning to, um, like paying attention to the body and that that doesn't have to be this like elusive thing. It can actually be something that's grounded in biology and in anatomy and that for the people that want that evidence that that's there and i think that's what i really like about somatics and having such a strong background in anatomy is that i find it easier to ground the somatics in biology and in anatomy because i think that can help it feel less scary for people and less um confusing because it's not that we're just doing something spiritual. It is spiritual, but it's not only spiritual. It's also like down here on earth. We're not just Mm -hmm. going to the mountaintops. We're not just going to the clouds. We're bringing that into the body and we live on earth. We live here in our bodies. And so we can do a lot of the mental stuff and that's a really safe space for a lot of people. And I'm not against that at all, but I love creating that conversation like, oh, where does the mind and the body collaborate, where they communicate? How can we honor both of those wisdoms? I feel like I'm just letting your words and description wash over me. That is so beautiful thinking about, yeah, we do live in this body. And I totally agree with you. There's something immediate about the body. There's something actually concrete about it. And that's something that in the somatics program, we did talk a lot about is like the mind and words are a type of abstraction and they're very useful abstractions, but the body is right here right now, immediate. And there's something about accessing that, that just cuts through the bullshit, you know, Mm -hmm. right. We can bullshit ourselves so much with our minds and our thoughts, and we can spend endless amounts of time navel gazing, having conversations. But when you go to the body, it's such a direct access point. And I also love how what you just said about sometimes bringing anatomy into a conversation about somatics can be so helpful because somatics can lean very spiritual. And for a lot of people, that can be hard. That can be a difficult access point. But I love that your experience in somatics, the starting point was actually body work. Mm -hmm. And you can help folks who might otherwise be kind of averse to somatics, might have a harder time getting the benefits from it. You can help them have a bit stronger of a foothold because you you can be very concrete. You can talk about the body in a way that isn't overtly spiritual. And is very, um, <laughs> word that came to mind is meaty, which is funny, but also very appropriate considering uh-huh. what we're talking about. That helps them really land in it. And I think that's obviously, that's not a background that every somatics practitioner has, but that seems like such a, a great advantage or um, great aspect that you can bring to the work for folks who really need that, who'd otherwise not access it. Yeah. And I think you know, that may be a good segue into marketing because that's some of what I've found is what people tend to respond to in my work of that's one, that's the thing I love talking about is the 
you know, the physical body and how that shows up in our emotional world and vice versa. And when I'm sharing things with clients, when I'm sharing things with friends, when I'm sharing things on the internet, I notice that what I'm most interested in and what I'm most passionate about also happens to be what people resonate with the most. And so that took me a long time to figure out of like, oh, I can do what comes easily to me. And that's actually the most powerful thing for my practice is not trying to be a version of a therapist that is somebody else that I see, because there are so many therapists that I admire and I look at them and I'm like, I want to be able to do that. And then really coming back to, but I'm me, I'm not them. And if I try to be them, I'm going to have a lack of confidence because I'm going to be contorting myself into a shape that I'm not. And so how do I really honor my story, my history, all the building blocks of my life that have brought me here? And there was something that shifted in me where it became easier to present myself as a therapist when I just kind of really let myself be like, well, what do I, what can I not shut up about? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do that. That is a great question. Everything you just said, like I want people to re-listen to that over and over again, because that's something I really try to convey to the people that I work with is what what can you not shut up about? That's actually a question that I ask people in my program to, to reflect on when they're like, I don't know who should I work with or what should I be saying? What's my messaging? It's like, well, what are you already saying? What are you already so excited about? Who are the clients in your practice that you're so thrilled to work with that if we could just turn the volume up on that portion of your caseload, you know, it's like, we don't have to be the generic therapist. We don't have to be the what's popular right now, because ultimately if that's the game you're playing, it's not going to work for you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's gonna, even if you did exactly what the most popular person (laughs) on Instagram is doing, or the person with like the best website or who has the most clients, if that's not you, it's just not going to work. And I totally get why people want to do that because they don't know what the alternative is. There's this temptation to think that if I do what's working for this other person, then I will be successful. And it can be so disappointing to find out that that's not the case. I feel like this is also a really good segue into just hearing about what happened after grad school. I want to hear kind of about your journey of building your practice. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk about what you did immediately following graduation, and then we can talk about how your practice has evolved since then. Yeah. So immediately following graduation, I was working at the Center for Mindful Psychotherapy, which is where I met you mm-hmm. and group supervision together for part of that. And um, a lot of the therapists in that group supervision were from the somatic program. And so that's, for me, where I started beginning to toy around with the idea of, oh, yes, I can be a somatic therapist because I'm speaking the same language as my colleagues who were in a different program than me, but we're, they get me and I get them. And, and I think the hardest part for me at the beginning of building my practice was there was a period of a little under a year where I had consistently like one or two clients and boy, was I ashamed and boy, did I feel like a fraud And I just was really, really doubting myself. And I was so scared. And I was really at that point marketing from a place of scarcity. I was like, really just hoping, pick me, pick me, 
give me more clients so I can feel better about myself. And my dad actually said something to me during this time that in the moment felt like complete bullshit. And later I'm like, oh my gosh. And he said, Emily, is it possible to let yourself enjoy the spaciousness that you have right now? Because I guarantee you, you won't always have that. And I was like, dad, I need more clients. I'm never going to finish my hours. And it's taken time to build my practice. It's, you know, it took me maybe three or four years to really get to a place where I had what felt like a full caseload and where I was starting to make money, right? So it definitely does take patience. It is an endurance game. Um, I have a lot of compassion for people that are in that struggling phase of building. Um, And I think about that every time that I have a little bit more spaciousness open up in my practice, like let's say a client graduates or a client um, moves or for any reason we close. And I, I get this little knee jerk response to move back into a space of scarcity of, oh no, oh no. And then what has happened is now I'm realizing, oh, I actually sort of believe my dad's voice now of, or I can enjoy this spaciousness. And then it feels more easy to let whatever might come into that spaciousness come in more easily. So I do find that when I do have more spaciousness, it's also when I, when I write more, when I'm a little bit more creative, when I get to step back and assess, you know, do I like my schedule? Do I like my website? Do I like my life? <laughs> Do I like what I'm what I have set up here? Um, so I have found that meeting those ebbs and flows has become easier over the years. And it's still tempting to move back into that place of scarcity, but it doesn't come on as strongly as it used to, which is just like so nice to recognize and even say out loud. I'm like, oh, how far I've come. Yeah, I feel like we should celebrate you right now. That is that is a huge shift um, to come to a point where, because I know what you're talking about. I know that feeling of like one person ends and it's like, you could have literally the moment before that been feeling super confident, right? Feeling safe with money. And then one person says, yeah, I think I'm going to end therapy. And all of a sudden it's like the whole narrative gets completely rewritten and recast. It's like suddenly your business is about to fail. Suddenly you're about to end up on the street. Suddenly like every, your entire life is called into question because one thing changed. And I, I think over the years of running my practice and now running this business, it's not as if like I don't still have that impulse sometimes. And sometimes it's stronger than others, but I have a totally different relationship with it because I have seen so many ebbs and flows. And even if I'm scared initially, I have the evidence that it doesn't stay that way. Just like your dad said, it's not going to stay this way. Mm -hmm. I remember early on, I was talking to my friend, Marissa Cotter, who also, she's a therapist in LA. And I remember she was a year ahead of me and we were talking after I graduated and I had just gotten to CMP. And I remember telling her, I don't have enough clients I'm so frustrated. I don't know what to do. Like, it doesn't feel like it's growing. I need money. I need clients. I need to get my hours. And she was like, Felicia, it is growing. And I was like, you're not listening to me, Marissa. I just told you it's literally not. And she said, yes, it is. People are talking about you right now. 
People are saying your name, they're sharing about your business. You just don't know it yet. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. And it's so funny because that still happens in this business. Occasionally I'll hear from people where they're like, oh yeah, I just told my supervision group about you. Or, oh yeah, someone mentioned your name to me. And I'm like, I have no idea who that person even is, right? And Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for us to remember that there's all sorts of things that we can see. And then there's, it's kind of like an iceberg. There's like probably the majority of things that are happening are probably completely unknowable to us, you know? Um, And I I love hearing that wisdom from your dad. So for folks who are listening right now and are kind of in that place, like we hear you, we've been there. It is really fucking scary. And you can go from that to where you're at now. So Emily, maybe it would be great to do a bit of like a flash forward to like what it's like now. And then we can maybe talk a little bit more about the in-between, but I just think it'd be nice to hear like that contrast, right? Because I'm guessing at the time, when you were in that scarcity, it felt like it probably never was going to change. Absolutely. It, it felt like maybe I'm not meant to do this. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I got on the wrong train, you know? And I have so much tenderness for that version of myself because I was not able to trust that there were therapists who had been in the business longer who were full to the point where they were referring clients out referring clients to therapists who had space. And I'm now in that space where I love being contacted by therapists who are earlier in the process and knowing that they're excited, that they want more clients, that they're ready for more clients, that they have a specialty that they're kind of figuring out. And it feels really wonderful to to be in a place where I have a sense of overflowing. I have a sense of, you know, even even if I do have space, I have a, you know, a sense of if someone calls me and we're not a good fit, rather than me saying, wait, but here's why you should work with me. Don't hang up until you commit to a session with me. I get to really say either, you know, just really follow your gut and choose who is a right fit for you and to mean that and believe it, or to say, you know what, I don't know if I'm the best fit for you, but here's who comes to mind. And I love what you're saying about you don't know who's talking about you. And I think at the beginning of my journey around marketing, especially, I was so turned off by the idea of marketing because I didn't want to be salesy. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to try to convince people. Um, I just imagined that I that I would have to be like a car salesman and that everyone was going to see through it and that. I just didn't want to convince people to work with me and try to say, pick me, pick me. And it took a long time to get to the place of rather than pick me, pick me to say like, this is me, this is what I'm offering. Um, And I took the stance of almost visualizing myself more as like a shop owner of like, I'm just here standing behind the counter. Take a look at what I'm selling. You don't have to buy anything, but you're welcome to stop by. And you can stay as long as you want and you can buy stuff. You can buy a little bit, you can buy a lot or not. You can go to the next shop and that that I get to be just sort of like a, a place that people get to check in with. And if it feels like a good fit, then wonderful. And if not, wonderful also. I love that. And I think as the shop owner, you also want your shop to be like visible and not hidden away in some dark alley. That's like really hard to find. And then 
they come in and like are like have you ever walked into a shop and like almost always people are a bit overbearing and they're like hi do you need something but occasionally you'll walk into a shop where like no one is paying any attention and you're like oh i need hello like is anybody mm-hmm. here and it's are like open? <laughs> yeah are you open can i buy anything is any of this for sale like you want the shop to be like a good experience and i think that's something that a lot of therapists like don't get. They're like, if I have a nice shop that is open and has things to sell and has clearly listed pricing and like what you're getting is very apparent and you can quickly tell if this is the place for you or not, then I'm being salesy. It's like, no, then you're just making it easy for people to hire you. And that's important. And I, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's also what's like a huge journey for me. Another thing that was really big for me around marketing was like, feeling like I shouldn't have to, like having a chip on my shoulder where it was sort of like, I'm a therapist. I have a master's degree. People should just want to work with me. I should just be able to say, this is who I work with. And people are like, yeah, I'll work with you. And I wasn't at the time really appreciating. And this is going to be a cringy word for some folks listening. Cause I know it was for me at the time. Like I wasn't appreciating like the customer journey or their buying experience. And I think a lot of us would like to think that that's not that's not going on. That's not a factor. Therapy is somehow outside of that. And it's just not. People are making purchasing decisions. They are deciding what to do with their money and their time. And we need to understand that that is a customer, not just a client. And they are on a buying journey. And if we're sitting back and acting like, well, you should just hire me because I'm a therapist, we're not appreciating their perspective. And I'm not saying that we need to like convince them or like be cheesy or do something like that. But it's like, it's not enough to just be a therapist. You have to appreciate that someone is coming to buy something from you. Absolutely. And and I think therapists can get really stuck in the trap of trying to pretend like we're not business owners. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Like we, I mean, myself included, right? For a long time. And I've talked about this in previous episodes, like basically pretending like I'm not a business owner. And as because that felt bad and wrong somehow, like I kind of combined that with like money grubbing. I just saw that all as being really problematic. And so because I didn't want to be a problem, I was just like, well, I won't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Rather than what I do now, which is like, there are aspects of this that can be problematic. How can I engage in it in a way that feels aligned with my values? How can I be willing to engage with it in a way that allows me to learn in this process and take the expectation off myself to have it all figured out before I ever even do it, which I think is, you know, that perfectionist part that can create a lot of blocks. Yeah. I love what you say about, you know, remember you don't have a job, you have a business, right? That, that running a private practice is usually a really intentional choice for people because it, it comes with a lot of uncertainty and we don't have that set salary. We don't have those set hours. We don't have that set income, but we do have a lot of freedom. And if we don't let ourselves create the shop that we enjoy being in, then we're going to end up resenting our clients. We're going to end up resenting other therapists who are doing it differently. We're going to end up burning out. We're going to end up not wanting to continue to do this work. Um, so one thing I've been thinking about lately is like, one promise that I want to make to my clients in general is that I will set up my practice in a way that protects me from resenting you. 
I love that. One of my favorite phrases that I've learned over the years is if you have to pick between guilt or resentment, always choose guilt. Mm -hmm. If it's Mm -hmm. ever a choice between like, okay, well, if I do what I really want, I'm going to feel guilty. But if I don't do what I really want, I'm going to feel resentful. Don't put someone in a position where you're resenting them. It's not cool. And we should never be putting our clients in that position. And sometimes that means that we're not going to be able to work with some people because in order to work with them, we would have to make concessions that would lead to resentment. And that is that totally undermines the value of a therapeutic relationship if resentment is in the picture. Now, some people hearing this might be like, like brain exploding. Oh my God. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) Crap. This is my whole caseload. I just realized. And it's like, yeah, there are some instances where we have to kind of overhaul the choices we've made. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for you, as you've, as your practice has evolved, have you had moments like that? Maybe it wasn't a whole overhaul, but like, how have you noticed and grappled with things needing to change in your business as for me, I would say sometimes more desires come online. My desires change. What I was previously totally down for at some points, sometimes I'm not down for that anymore. I want something different in my life or in my business or in my money. Um, And so my businesses have needed to change because of that. How have you navigated that in your business? Yeah, I think that's really important to pay attention to. And also just to name that how you run your business is going to change because we are not static. We're not just this. I'm not the same person I was when I was 25, right? I have different ideas about what a really good day feels like for me. And I think at some point, you know, the, the pinnacle of my image of myself as a therapist was having my own office downtown and furnishing it. And I just felt so excited when I had that. I remember that. I remember going to your office. It was a beautiful office. I had the same thing. It was kind of like this dreamy, like I'll be professional, have like my couch and like, it'll be this beautiful space. And that for me for a while was, yeah, that was all I wanted. I didn't think to dream bigger. I just wanted my nice office. Mine wasn't going to be downtown, but like same sort of idea. Yeah. And it it felt like it had so much meaning that it was what made me professional. And when the pandemic hit and we transitioned to teletherapy, I really started noticing like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm more grounded. I'm more hydrated. I'm better fed because I'm not scrambling around downtown trying to find a little lunch in between sessions. I can actually see more clients because I'm not trying to cram everything into a short time and, you know, only having to be away from home and, you know, my dog can only be left alone for so many hours and all of that stuff that was adding to the labor of trying to make my schedule. And it felt really taboo at first to say, like, I enjoy working from home. And I think it's been an an important process for me to not only acknowledge what do I enjoy about this? How does this work for me? But also how does that then translate to supporting my clients? Like I can see more clients and I am more present and I If I'm hydrated and fed, I'm a better listener and a better therapist. Absolutely. I think one of the sort of mantras that I've tried to put in place in how I approach my work is, if it's good for me, it's good for my clients. And I think the crux of good therapist conditioning is that that's actually not true. 
the sense mm-hmm. that we have when we're falling into that trap is that what is good for me is not good for my clients. Having enough money to afford the life that I want would mean having higher fees. And so me having what I want is not good for my clients, right? But I feel like you just what you just said is such a clear example of how that's just simply not true. Because when you have what you want, when you're able to work in the way that you want, you are a better therapist for the clients you have. That mm-hmm. might create some limitations to who you're going to work with, but there are always limitations to who you're going to work with. And now you're doing better work and the clients are having a better experience. You're happier. You're more likely to stay in the field. I think one of the things that's really true about the mental health field is so many people don't last that long. It's kind of like a churn and burn sort of thing. Really, you know, old souls get into the field super eager, thinking that they're, I don't know, I don't know what we're thinking. We're thinking a lot of things, but we're definitely not anticipating how challenging this job can be. And then we burn out and we're done. And that just happens over and over. And there's so much like wasted skill and potential because people are not staying in the field. And I think mm-hmm. that it's it's ultimately a disservice to, to the field and to our clients when therapists are so overwhelmed, so under-resourced, so burnt out that they leave after a while. And most of the time, we're still saddled. By the time we make that decision, it's not like our debt is even paid. So now we're burnt out of the field we spent all this money on, and we still have all our debt. Mm-hmm. And what next, right? We're back at the drawing board. So I think this is this is what I would love to see more therapists do because I think it's ultimately going to serve us in the long run. It's it's challenging. It's like a big transition for us to break out of that good therapist conditioning and actually start doing our work differently. But I think it's really beneficial in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I remember in training hearing from a lot of different angles, don't get into this field for money. That's not why we do this. And I don't know if that has to be true. I I think that we can want both things. And I think you're such an important voice in reminding people that it's okay to want to make money. It's not only okay, it's important. It's like it's necessary because unless you literally are not using money, you've figured out a way to exist in the world without it, you in fact do need to make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even if you have good support, you know, like I was pretty well supported financially through my process and that sort of got internalized as I don't deserve this support any more than anybody else does, which got internalized as I don't deserve this money, which turned into if I don't want to make money, then that makes me a good person, which is similar to your story, but coming from a different angle where I really got the message that if you have money, if you have enough, it's not okay to want to make money. And at the same time, I was, you know, not taking vacation and I was, you know, working at whatever hour was convenient for my clients and and not me. And I wasn't firm on my cancellation policy. And that ended up feeling unfair. And that is where resentment could creep in. And, you know, I've had clients at this point who they know that I'm firm about my cancellation policy. And they like that because they know that they can cancel on me last minute without feeling guilty. And they've, I've had clients that said, thank you. I know that you're not mad at me right now. And that feels really important because, yes. You're going to pay for the session. And 
I'm not mad at you for missing your therapy session. Like life happens, but I'm not going to pay out of my pocket for you to do this other thing that you chose was more important than therapy. (laughs) Exactly. I feel like that's so helpful for people to hear. Like, I never really thought about it that way. I mean, I've had other, I've had my own clients say to me, like, I don't know that I would come as regularly as I do Mm -hmm. because, because of your cancellation policy. And that's like helpful because I might just like cancel willy nilly and ultimately I wouldn't get as much out of the work. So like, I actually really like that you have this cancellation policy. And I think for folks who are, who have like, I often say like theoretical cancellation policies because they're never enforced. They're nonsensical. There's no action. Even if they do exist, the criteria is like foggy. It's like, you don't know. It's, you're more likely to enforce it based on guilt rather than criteria. It's just like, there's no framework. Um, So I think it's so nice to hear like, oh, this can actually be of service to the client, even from a clinical perspective, because that makes so much sense. If the person is aware that like, this is literally your livelihood, then they have some awareness that when they don't pay you and it's last minute unexpected that you are just out that money, like that, you just don't get paid that. And so I can see it being a relief and an unburdening for them to know that like, yeah, I get to make this decision and I'm still paying Emily. And I know that's not poisoning the well of our relationship. And I kind of recognize that at the end of the day, this is a business and this is a professional relationship. And I also think that is very important because I think in some cases, clients, not just saying this theoretically, I have had a client tell me that essentially they fantasized that I was, that this was not a professional relationship. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And when it came time for me to enforce a policy that came into really sharp focus and we really had to confront that. And I think policies help remind the client that you're not friends. This is not something that's being done for free or for shits and giggles or out of even out of the goodness of your heart. This is something that you're good at. This is a professional skill set. And it's also something that many of us are very naturally good at, as you described earlier. Like you are a good listener. You are very curious about people. That's something that you cultivated long before you became a therapist. But in this setting, this is professional. This isn't something you do for free. And I think it's really important for us to like sit in that place with our clients. Because if we don't, and if we're uncomfortable with that, it muddies the waters. And clients do end up with these fantasies that ultimately we cannot fulfill. As much as we might want to, as guilty as we may sometimes feel that we can't, we simply cannot fulfill those fantasies. And it's really important for us to not like encourage that from our direction. Now, if our client's going to have that fantasy, they're going to have that fantasy and we're going to have to work with it, but we should not be encouraging that. Absolutely. And it's actually why I haven't made my scheduling automated that, you know, the platform I work on, that is an option, but I think there's so much therapy, especially on the attachment level that happens around scheduling. That's really, really important for the work. And something that I found myself explaining to clients is, you know, again, kind of that promise, like this holding my cancellation policy very firmly and not making decisions that are case by case really helps me from any sort of risk of favoritism. And, 
everybody cancels for a good reason. Like there is no reason that's more good than somebody else's reason. So, you know, you might be sick or you might just be like, I don't feel like going to therapy today. Both of those get to be good reasons, especially if with one client, if I, you know, lean and lenient with my cancellation policy one time and not another time, that sends the message that like, why isn't she doing it this time? Why isn't she giving me a break this time? Did I do something wrong? And it sets up this fantasy of if I'm just a good enough client, Mm -hmm. then she will reward me by exactly. And that's dangerous. That, that is a dynamic that if it's playing out in the therapy, it's playing out other places in your life too. And it's important to look at. And so I do think of my cancellation policy as protective and also policies around you know, I'm I'm not a crisis center. I, I don't answer the call at any hour. Um, you can email me at any time, but I don't, um, I'm not always available. And that that is a boundary too, that, you know, my clients know that they actually can't take advantage of me because I have the boundary set up that, you know, we wouldn't even get to that point where I'm like, oh, you're just calling me too much at every hour of the day. Cause it's like, that's an expectation that's already set up of like, yeah, I don't respond during certain hours and I don't tend to email over the weekend and I don't write really, really, really long emails. And I charge if my time goes over a certain amount of time. And that's all, you know, what could fall under the category of like a bad therapist, like what a meaning. Oh no, you're you're a bad therapist. It's official. Super bad. Super bad. Uh, Maybe that's what we'll call this episode. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's something that a lot of early therapists can fall into because we are so eager and we're like, I just want to be there for you. I want to help you. Oh my gosh. No one's ever listened to you. No one's ever considered your feelings. I'm going to, I'm going to be the one who does that. And we can oh my God, God bless us. We are trying so hard and it's coming from such a sweet and genuine place. And I think when we see older therapists or people who have been in the field longer who aren't acting like that, we can just be like, y'all are callous bitches, (laughs) you know, or like if you ever get a Yeah. Or if you ever get a client who is like coming and complaining about a therapist and they're like, oh, this therapist was so awful. They like, can you believe it? They like, this horrible thing happened and they like, still charge me for the session and young therapists will be like, Oh, that monster, you know? And then fast forward five years when they like have a caseload of clients where like, there's no structure, there's no cancellation policy. And suddenly they're out like a thousand dollars or more a month. And they're like, Oh, right. That's why these things exist. And I think it's really easy for us to judge each other. And what I like to say is like, you get to create the practice that works for you. You don't have to do it the way other people are doing it. That person doesn't, if someone who's doing it differently than you is not wrong because it's different. I would hope that that person has a different practice than you because they've taken the time to figure out what they actually need. And you have the practice you have because you've taken the time to figure out what you really need. And those get to be, those. there get to be different answers to those questions according to who the person is. And that's why I'm so careful these days. And I used to not be this way at all. I try not to judge other people for the businesses they're creating. And I largely don't because I I assume that you did something in service of your desires and that in the best of all possible worlds, you're doing what you described, which is I'm committing to my clients that I'm not going to make an agreement with them 
that would lead to resentment. And therefore I'm protecting our relationship. I'm also protecting myself and them against favoritism by having a policy that is consistent and doesn't ever put me in the position where I'm judge or jury about whether or not someone's rational, like reason for canceling counts enough. Like what is an emergency? Like there can be wildly different interpretations of that. Like I had a client once who got in a pretty severe accident and once hospitalized and he came back and was like, Hey, I know I missed a session. Like, I know I need to make it up. Like, when can we book that? I've had clients who like you know, had a cold and needed to cancel and were like uproarious about the fact that I enforced the cancellation policy. And it's just like, what counts as an emergency is so differently interpreted by different clients. And I think as a therapist, we shouldn't be the judge of that. I think we should have a policy that's consistent. And that's something that actually Scott Balderson, our group supervisor, shared when I was at CMP and I wanted to change the standard cancellation policy to something else. And I was like, it was some, I was going to make like an extended cancellation policy because I was finding that my clients got really good at canceling ahead of time. And then I would still be out the money. And I was like, well, that's not working because I love that I'm getting advanced notice, but like, I can't just swap in another client if they're gone for two weeks and I can't afford not to get paid. So like, I have to change my cancellation policy. So anyway, I was like, Scott, can I make these changes? He said, yes. And I said, well, should there be exceptions? And he said, well, if there are exceptions, then this isn't a policy. This like essentially is not like, if there's like holes in it, then like this is basically a non-existent policy. It's like a in name only because you have no way to interpret it. What is an emergency? So I think like probably people listening to this would have lots of feelings about this. I can like imagine good therapists arguing with us right now. But I'm curious, like, what would you say to people, therapists who are like, oh, I just don't think I could do that? Like, really? No exceptions? Like, what would you say to those people? On one hand, I'd say give yourself grace. Like, let yourself experiment with not enforcing your policy and see how you feel. Watch the resentment grow. Watch people cancel more and more often, you know, and, and pay attention to that and notice where your edges are. Because I think also, when I didn't have as many clients and I did have more open spots, I convinced myself that I was more okay with not enforcing the cancellation policy because I had some sense of like, oh, well, it's not like someone was waiting for that spot anyway. And, you know, and, and then when my practice has gotten more full, I've really felt the reality of if you don't give me enough notice, there might be someone who needs that spot. And then I had to tell them, no, that spot's not available. And then you didn't show up. And and so there is this sort of developmental trajectory with it, I think, where if if it's really feeling like an edge for you, that's okay. Just notice the edge, notice what's hard about it. And I'd also say notice where it's showing up elsewhere in your life, where are you crossing your own boundary in personal relationships, because I think that is the special sauce of being a therapist is we really get to see things that come up in our practice. They show up in our life too, just in the same way as when someone comes to therapy, the way they are in relationship with me is informative about how they are in relationship with other people outside of therapy too. And so I'd say, yeah, give yourself grace, but pay attention to it and really notice. Yeah. I love that. Really permission to sort of choose your own adventure. Like you have options here. This is what 
Emily and I have both discovered in running our own practices, find out for yourself, experiment, pay attention to what happens in you when different things occur in your practice. Ah, I love this. So one last thing before you go, because this has been such an incredibly rich conversation. There were so many things you said that I like wanted to comment on and like we didn't get a chance to. So we'll have to have you back because this was just so much fun. And people I'm sure have gotten tons out of listening to your story. The one last thing is if you could send a message to your earlier therapist self at some point in time, like what point of time might that be? And what would you want past Emily to know? Mm, That's a great question. I think the point in time would be right at that pain point where I wasn't in school anymore. I had graduated. So in my fantasy, I was going to go straight from graduation to feeling like a, like a fully practicing therapist. And that's just not reality. And I think what I would say to myself is something probably that was even said to me at the time, which is like, you're building right now. And you have to build the foundation before you try to go run up the stairs to the second floor and look out the window, right? And, and that it's, it's okay to build. It does take time. And when you build really slowly and you build intentionally, that's then really, really sturdy. And I think I would probably also remind her, you know, that thing your dad said is not total bullshit. Like, let yourself enjoy this spaciousness because I look back on that time and I couldn't see it in the moment, but at that time, there was so much else happening in my life that I'm so grateful for now that couldn't have happened if I didn't have that space. And that feels really important to recognize of like, this is a job. It's not who we are. And I think therapists can And I think any business owner can get really wrapped up in this is who I am because it feels like your baby. It feels like something that you're like birthing. And so it is really connected to your identity, but also remembering that like, this is not who you are. And I don't have to be a therapist in every space of my life. Oh my God, Emily. So well said. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Mm -hmm. Obviously we could go so much more into that topic, but for better or worse, you're going to have to end the episode here. Thank you so much, Emily, for being a guest on The Bad Therapist Show and speaking with me today. Again, I just love this conversation so much. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun to get to chat with you again and really talk about the business and the world. And, and it's been such a pleasure also to watch your trajectory from afar. Thank you so much. Yeah. And we'll make sure that your information is linked in the show notes so that if folks want to find out about you or learn about working with you as a therapist, that they can do that. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope this conversation is leaving you filled with hope and encouragement to create a practice that works for you. Remember, your practice is growing, whether you see it or not. And there are therapists out there who do want to refer to you. Emily is one of them. Emily talked about confronting something we all do, disappointment, and it is the number one thing that will stop you from having a successful practice. Tune in next week where I'll teach you what to do and what not to do when you're dealing with disappointment. I'll see you then. That's all today for The Bad Therapist Show. Thanks so much for hanging with me. 
I hope you got some gems that you can start using right away in your own business so that you can break out of good therapist conditioning and build the business that you want. If you've gotten something out of this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with one of your good therapist friends who really needs to hear it. And while you're at it, please consider leaving a rating and or review so that we can change not just our individual businesses, but transform the mental health system that got us here in the first place. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week for more private practice and coaching tips. Remember, bad therapists make the best therapists.